This season of the Transcending Conversations podcast has been focused on digital equity and minimizing the digital divide. We've talked to several experts about the importance of providing access to reliable internet, devices, and digital literacy training. But we have yet to talk about the fourth pillar of digital equity, digital well-being. According to Common Sense Media, over 50% of teens consider themselves addicted to the internet. The Pew Research Center reports that 56% of black teens, 55% of Hispanic teens, and 36% of white teens report going online almost constantly. However, made-to-be-minoritized youth also more strongly cite social media as making them feel more supported and accepted. A shift towards, toward digital well-being is desperately needed to balance this supportive tool with its potential for toxic mental health outcomes. In May 2015, Larissa May, known as Lars, shared her struggle with mental health on social media and half the story was born, pioneering the leading digital well-being movement for the next generation. Half the story works with educational institutions, state and federal governments, and Fortune 500 companies to create new standards for our digital future. Lars has been named a digital wellness activist by Time, Forbes, Refinery29, Good Morning America, and NBC. Beyond her organizational efforts with political figures and tech leaders, Lars speaks for a growing generation of digital activists toward a thriving future. We are so excited to welcome Lars in this episode of Transcending Conversations. Welcome, everybody. Today, we're so excited to have Larissa May on our podcast today, who goes by Lars. So we're going to call her Lars. And we've already given this one shot and the recording didn't go through. So we're round two and we're just excited to be here. <laughs> um, but Lars, can we're you... We're excited to record. Yes, excited for this one to actually go through. <laughs> Can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you? So my name is Larissa, but most people call me Lars. So that's usually the first question I get, which is, is Lars your actual name? Because if so, I was expecting a large Scandinavian male. But no, in fact, it is my nickname. I am a digital well-being activist. I started working in the space seven years ago, and I'm the founder of Half the Story, which is really the leading global youth nonprofit at the intersection of mental health and technology. And so our vision is to make digital well-being accessible to everyone. And our mission is to empower the next generation's relationship with tech by giving them the resources, advocacy, and opportunities to be at the center of the conversations rather than just be the victims of the decisions that others make or the victims of the social media platforms. Can you tell us a little bit about like how you came to create half the story, the little background information about it, and, and your kind of role in that process? Yes. Well, any innovation is basically just taking a problem and finding a solution to it. And I think people always say, well, how do you innovate? How do you start a business? And it's as simple as being able to connect the dots before other people in the world can. And a lot of times for founders, it starts with their own problem. And half the story is no exception to that. So seven years ago, I was a young digital native. I just entered into college. It was, I think, two years after I had received my first social media platform, which was Instagram. And I remember from the day I downloaded social media, my brain was never the same. I never had the same amount of attention. Reading books became more challenging. And I started to just see that my brain was shifting. But one thing that I did experience throughout my entire life was a mental illness and it was depression, but I wasn't ever able to treat it or acknowledge it. 
So it wasn't really until social media came into my life that I started to realize that I had other issues that were unaddressed and my life became more challenging. So the more that I became addicted to the digital world, the more disconnected I became from myself, my own emotions and others. And it got to a point where it, and everything really came to a hedge when I was a sophomore in college. And I was ironically running a social media agency and had a fashion blog. But the story that I told the world was that everything was going well. And what people didn't see was that I was in my dorm room. I didn't go to class for two weeks. My roommate moved out because I was depressed. My room was a mess. And everything was really crumbling to the point where I wound up having and experiencing suicidal ideation. And my RA took me to the psychological care center on campus. And lucky, luckily, I'm here today and I'm alive and I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing. But throughout the process, the standard of care was come in, get diagnosed, have your, your drugs, your pills, your antidepressants, and go out and get back into the world. Now, I did everything they told me to do. I took my antidepressants. I tried to get back into fitness and going to the gym. But the one thing that did not change in that journey was the fact that I still had my device. I still had my phone. And they never asked me about the drug in my pocket. And my phone was still the center of my conscience. It was where I put all of my energy, focusing on what other people would think and feel, to feel about me, so much so that I was still very disconnected from what I was actually experiencing. It was almost like going through the motions and watching yourself, but not actually experiencing emotions, if that makes sense. It was like this yeah. very numbing experience. One, because it takes a bit to get used to antidepressants, but then two, being in the digital world, it was this numbing device for me to kind of escape everything that I was feeling. So after just kind of analyzing my own experience with tech, I started to just ask the hard questions. How is this impacting my mood? How is this impacting? Why am I at the gym on an elliptical and spending my whole time trying to get followers for my Instagram? Like something's not adding up. And so that's when I realized that I actually had a social media problem and I had an addiction to tech in, along with dealing with, of course, depression and an untreated eating disorder, all of those things that compounded because of what the digital world was creating for me. I was addicted to the place that was showing me photos of women that I would never measure up to, as well as giving me tips and tricks on how to restrict my eating and showed other videos and photos of people that were experiencing suicidal ideation. So I was like, look, enough is enough. I got to change my habit with this. No one's going to teach me. So it's up to me to figure it out. So I started doing experiments similar to how one would do experiments like elimination diets if you're trying to figure out what you're allergic to. And I started to delete apps. I started to, you know, really take note of why I was going on my phone. And a lot of the time, seven out of time, it was to numb or because I was bored or I had nothing to do. And that was when I realized there was a really clear difference between active technology consumption and a way that you're really present towards something, engaging with it in a way that it supports you versus passive, which can actually be numbing. And that's when you get into rabbit holes. It's equivalent to, you know, making the active version of tech consumption would be an analogy to, okay, I'm going to have lunch. I'm going to get up. I'm going to make my lunch. and I'm going to enjoy it. The passive analogy would be, I ha I'm going to have lunch. I don't know what I'm going to eat because I'm so busy that I'm just going to get a family-sized bag of popcorn and eat the whole thing because I have no time. I have no energy to make it, and I'm mind mind mindlessly consuming. And so I thought, hmm, well, 
what if we lived in a world where youth actually had the tools from the start and we started thinking about digital equity through the lens of digital well-being? Because the kids that don't have access to tech or don't have access to internet are also the ones that are the ones that are first to receive it are within their families or generations or environments are also the ones that are going to be the most predisposed to mental health problems. And so that's where the story began. It started with a $250 grant in my dorm room. And now we have worked all around the world. We do both state and national policy making and have really been the first movers in the space. So that's what leads me here today and is why some days I have to wake up at 4.30 a.m. to get everything done that I need to. <laughs> which is which is great for our mental health, right? <laughs> well, believe it or not, I actually am a, not a night person. So I actually went to bed at like 8 o'clock last night. So 4.30 a.m. sounds crazy. But if you're in bed at 8, it's doable. I actually slept eight and a half hours. So it's not about the time that you wake up. It's about the amount of time that you spend sleeping and really the time you go to bed. So I think you that's also part of your digital well-being is finding out what works for you, not being on your phone before bed so that you can go to bed by nine o'clock because so many of us that are in bed and can't fall asleep are probably picking our, our devices, which are keeping us up even more hours because blue light is one of the greatest disruptors of melatonin production. Right. Right. Thank you so much for sharing your experience and your story. I know that's really personal and and sometimes it's really like hard and vulnerable to share those things. So I appreciate you sharing that with our audience. Of course. Um, so this season of the podcast is focused on minimizing the digital divide. And we've talked to a lot of experts, you know, from people in education to people, you know, on city council or, you know, economic development planners. We've talked to a variety of people in this space. And, and most of the conversations have centered around getting people access to reliable internet or getting people access to devices. But we wanted to also talk about this idea of digital well-being. And so why do you think it's important that in those conversations of digital equity and digital access, we include upfront and, you know, like foremost at times, a conversation about digital well-being? Well, first and foremost, I think that our society and culture we, we're living in this interesting period where we're so focused on either internet, whether it be bringing internet to kids or shunning internet from the kids that have it and taking away their phones in school. So there's a lot of fear and animosity around that. Um, but there's also a lot of fear around the fact that we have a mental health crisis. And right. the way that we think about these two things on the society level tend to be on different sides of the room. When you go speak at governments, you're, you're, they're talking about broadband access, but it's very much so from a first degree lens. It's not really thinking about st systemically how does lack of access or access itself perpetuate mental health problems that are existing within these communities. And so the way that we like to try to think about this is that there are really four steps to, if you think about the digital, the digital uh, well-being ecosystem to achieving digital equity. And I think, you know, the first is getting broadband access. The second is getting the tool. The third is teaching people how to use the tool for literacy and otherwise. And then the fourth level is really how do we use the tool to support our emotional well-being so that we can thrive? And also, how do we, the victims and the people that are most marginalized, understand that, you know, what the value is of our data and what we're up against from a social, emotional, and economic perspective when they're really the last ones to have that access to type of even like technological data and financial literacy. So our goal is to really be able to um, bring those two worlds together and think about digital well-being and digital equity as the intersection of digital access with 
and understanding of our emotional well-being. And um, another, you know, I think big issue is that when we don't look at these two worlds together, we also can't acknowledge the immense opportunity that there is in the digital world that is positive and the digital flourishing. A lot of the research that is done is really focused on the negatives of technology or, you know, there aren't a lot of people that are even doing data of the types of groups of people that you all are working with in your foundation. And so for us, you know, we also see it as a responsibility. We are education first, but I also would say research first because we are also trying to collect research and understand the geographical um, differences, the socioeconomic, racial, and really build that map of what digital well-being looks like from a qualitative and quantitative perspective, because that's one of the biggest limitations in the mental well-being space is that we aren't looking at things holistically. And I think for this movement to look different from maybe even just the typical well-being movement or, you know, I would say culture and commodity that our world created is to really just start with data from the start and look at it from all perspectives and lenses. And then also bridge the gap between, you know, the the consumers, the tech companies and the government that's really the intermediary to create systems of checks and balances so that everyone can thrive. Absolutely. You've told us a lot about like the the ideation of half the story and you know the mission the driving force behind it. I mean you talked a little bit about how you do research. What along with research, like what actively do does half the story do? Yeah. That's a great question. So and and that's important to zoom in because sometimes when you speak to the founder, you got like the thirty thousand foot view and the vision because that's the thing that carries you for seven plus years. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but on a really tactical level, this is what we do. So we have three pillars: education, research, and advocacy. I would say that research is really a combination of those two because it's really underlying in everything that we do if you're in the nonprofit space. And we do have a full-time head of insights that's just dedicated to that research. But anyway, so pillar number one, education. We have our hero program, which is called Social Media U. It is a micro intervention that is focused on middle school, eighth graders, and high schoolers to help them reimagine their relationship with technology, their emotions, and take back control. So we implement that programming and we do it through a couple of different ways. One is we'll bring in facilitators that are young people like us looking to get their PhDs or pursuing uh, degrees in in psychology to facilitate the programming. The second model is the trainer-to-trainer model. So we'll train leaders within the school to implement the programming, typically people outside of the traditional education space so that there's not that bias, right? And they can have different conversations. And then the third model is training student leaders to implement the programming. So sometimes freshmen in high school to teach it to middle schoolers if they're in in a school district or charter school that has that type of model of implementation that that works. So that's the education front. And for us, what we're really looking at because you're probably wondering what is, you know, what does that mean from an organization perspective and how do you actually impact like how young people are performing? So for us, we've designed a series of scales taking traditional scales from the emotional side of of science and then pairing that with some of the the scales that exist in the digital well-being world like digital flourishing so that we can focus on the positives as well as the negatives and be able to create social media climate surveys in different schools and districts and really give a holistic perspective on what's working, what's not working, but also, you know, 
pre and post surveys um, so that we can show our impact within specific districts. So that's the education arm. The second piece of what we do, and also on the education front, we think about it from an ecosystem. So we educate the youth. We also have a layered in element of parent programming and teacher programming. Then once kids go through our education programming, you know, we spend a lot of time working on policy on a state and federal level. And to be honest, I was the one that was going to all these Congress meetings, doing press XYZ. As a founder and CEO, you cannot run a company and then be the voice of a generation at Congress and be flying overnight to do things like that. So within that, I found an opportunity, which is to actually train youth and give them the skills that they need to organize online and offline and lobby for specific policies that they themselves are passionate about and connect them to those policy opportunities. So this is a new program that we're building with actually a partner youth organization And it's a digital civil rights academy. And we want to revolutionize the movement by actually educating youth and getting them to take clear action steps and connecting them to these within their local on like a local and global level. So what that also does is it allows us to take students that have gone through our programming and an educational level and allow them to further their learning and really bring it into the real world as more of a a longer term mode of engagement. So that's a program that we're working on um, that will support. And so that way for us as an organization, we can get youth to be educated about all the policies, but we're not telling them to support a specific policy. Right, right. And we want them to be able to choose and be empowered to choose that policy. And that's super important to me and was actually a limitation because as an individual supporting these policies, you know, that's very different than our an organization. So that's like a key focus for us. And then there's the research side, which is partnering with organizations, doing qual and quant to really understand not the only Im- the impact that we make, but understand and make recommendations to help close the digital equity gap in different parts of the world. Okay. So what, like, because obviously like this is a lot of work. There is, there's a lot of different pieces to the puzzle. What keeps you going? Like what keeps you motivated, you know, to continue to work on this challenge? Because yeah, at times it feels really massive. Well, there's actually like a theory of intrinsic motivation. And there's basically three things that drive that. And it's autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And I've been doing this work for seven years. I've always been an entrepreneur. I haven't been able to do this full time for seven years. I had other companies and jobs that because that's just like what you have to do to get an idea off the ground. And it was really, really hard. And so I think once I was able to break through and actually get an operating budget and do this full time, it was like, okay, we're on a one way, we've got a one way ticket and, you know, you've got to run with it. Uh, So there's that. I think the also on the side of mastery, like we have been in this space seven years. We were the, we have first movers advantage. So I could tell you anything you want to know about how this movement has shifted from 2016 to now, but also like where I see the future going based on the youth that we've worked with. And so being able to be really the go-to in the space in that way feels so amazing. And to now have a community of youth that we can empower to really lead this movement is also liberating because I don't have to be the one doing all the work. I can create the container for other people to do it, which is ultimately how movements are formed. And then lastly is purpose. I mean, You can make all the money in the world doing any job you want. And I think any entrepreneur will tell you that 
you aren't doing something because you want to get paid or make a lot of money, right? You go work in finance or go go do something else. But when you're building something and you're an entrepreneur, there's this inherent sense of purpose that you have because you know you're solving a problem. And it could be across any industry. And for me, you know, the problem for us just so happens to be in the social impact nonprofit space. And the problem has just so happened become so much bigger. I mean, People told me seven years ago, they were like, you have three eyes. I mean, I've never like, what do you mean? Digital well-being, social media, mental health. And now it's now it's here. Absolutely. Half the story is looking for teen voices to help them lobby and advocate for policy change across the United States. They've been actively fighting for change for several years and are aiming to hold tech platforms accountable for safe and healthy digital ecosystems. In May of 2022, half the story led the charge on the Social Media Duty to Children's Act, AB 2408, which holds tech companies accountable for using addictive algorithms against youth and takes steps to protect our data. If you are a teenager or a parent of teenage children who would like to be involved in Half the Story's teen advocacy program, please visit halfthestory.com advocacy. That's halfthestory.com advocacy. So you've talked a little bit about partnerships that you've created to to further the mission of Half the Story. I was wondering if you could speak to some of those partnerships, like what kind of organizations you partner with um, yeah. and how that helps create like an ecosystem for digital well-being. Yeah. So, oh my gosh. So I think partner means so many different things. I think I can kind of speak to it on each level. So on the youth level, we partner with young activists all over the United States and sometimes globally to make sure that they're the center of all the work, content, and education that we create. So we have really a tiered approach for how we work with our creators and our youth. So one is we have a like a digital well-being working group that specifically supports all of our content creation and like really our it's like our education workshop. Um, then we have a level of teen advisors, which are the ones that kind of speak high level, critique the organization's direction, make sure that like what we're talking about is hot and cool and of the moment. Mm-hmm. And then we have youth creators. And these are the activists that we train to create content that's relevant and timely to help get other youth involved. So that could be around policy, that could be around trends that are really harmful online. And then we have sort of that greater movement of digital activists that will be um, continuing to build through our, our program. So that's how we partner with youth. On an education level, we like to partner with like school districts. So both mostly like public, to be honest with you, and uh, charter schools, because we want our programs to be serving people that are, usually aren't getting it. So we happen to work in there, but we also work with organizations to help us expand our reach. So right now we're actually working with a large organization in the UK to bring our programming in the UK. And now we're launching there and we're launching in Spain and everything is just kind of like growing. So I'm like, oh God. Um, so we partner with other organizations to help us you know, bring us to other people that will benefit from our work. Um, And then on the policy level, it's amazing because we get to partner, I mean, with so many different people. Like we partner directly with the Pinterest team. They're impact supporters of ours. So we help them. And on policy, we're having all of our youth be involved in their Safer Internet Day initiative that's coming up. Like, like that's really special because we get to partner with tech companies, like a tech company that is really trying to make an impact for the better for youth. But then we also get to partner in coalitions of other youth on the public policy that we're doing. So 
there's a great uh, other youth organization called Civics Unplugged, the Omidier Network. Like these are all people that we're coming together with to say, hey, look, how can we make a difference together rather than build our own walls um, between each other? And so I think that's what's exciting, too, is that we're very much so about the spirit of collaboration and figuring out how do we all take our individual expertise and then create impact uh, holistically? Because we're going to move faster and stronger if we do it together and just own our lanes. Yeah. Yeah. I think collaboration is really powerful. And I think you guys are taking a really like all in hands on deck approach to that. And I think that'll, that'll. Yeah. All the way up to like co-grants, you know, that that's, and I think a lot of organizations are sometimes afraid to do that. But when you build really, deep partnerships with people, you like, you want to get in, in the battle with them and you want to say, Hey, you're really good at this. We're really good at this. Yeah, totally. So we've talked a lot about, you know, your desire to, to not only like rid like the space of the negative consequences, but also emphasize like the positives of, you know, digital access and things like that. Why do you think it's important in like today's day and age to have digital access Oh, my gosh. I mean, you cannot participate in modern democracy without it. I mean, now schools, I mean, every single school pretty much, especially with the pandemic, required digital access. Every single job application, every single piece of our world goes back to the Internet. And if you don't have not having access to the Internet is like the equivalent to not speaking our language. And there are a lot of English learners that we work with. And as a result, a lot of their parents are learners and still learning the Internet because a lot of them have come from rural places or come from, in the case of California, we have a lot of immigrants from Mexico that are working in agricultural space, especially in the Bay Area. So I just see this in a firsthand how uneven the playing field is and how we just kind of expect that people are going to know how to use it, what to do with it. But that's just not the case in the same way that you wouldn't just like go into a new culture or invite people here and expect that they would know English. Yeah, I think that's a really good comparison. And that puts it into perspective a lot. So looking at half the story and looking at all they've accomplished so far, what do you hope like half the story becomes in five years or in 10 years? I really hope that we can be a global institution and really the, the leaders at the intersection of emotional health and digital habits. I think we have the mental health space over here. We have data and policy and this over here, and we have digital equity over here. And I want us to be the leaders in bringing together these relationships and partnerships and doing this research and the leaders in education on a global level so that we can level the playing field because knowledge is power and it really starts there. Yeah. Amen. So for maybe like an organization, you know, similar to like a a larger nonprofit or maybe a tech company um, or even like a government organization, what kind of advice would you give, you know, for for them if they're looking to to partner or to make an impact in this space or just to to even listen and, and, you know, develop policy that adheres to the people that they need to help? I would say probably three things. One is Bring the people that you're trying to impact through your policies at the forefront of the conversation and give them a space to talk about what their needs are. Because we live in a culture, especially in the social impact space, where we prescribe our needs on others. And oftentimes that's actually not the right path. So, you know, bring the people that are most impacted to the to the center and let them speak their truth. The second piece is if you have a data science team, 
in order to support responsible innovation, create some sort of standard internally that requires that all new digital innovations go through a set of tests or research to ensure that it, it has a positive impact not only on your technological or financial outcome, but also on the human outcomes in society. Because what we're really looking at is opportunity cost of humanity and that emotional piece is so critical. And then the last thing that I would say is that it's really about, it's like progress makes perfect, right? It's not about being perfect out of the gate. It's about taking steps in the right direction. And I think a lot of people act in fear and don't do anything because they don't want to enter spaces. But it's something that I believe in the same way that we had, you know, the female rights revolution and all these different things. Like people want, parental leave in the same way that people are going to want, they're going to want to make sure that companies that they work for are thinking about this because it impacts their kids and their lives. What audience of people would you say is like most interested in the work that you're doing? Would you say that it is youth and the rising generation or is it like parents that have concerns or? That's a, a really great question. And for us, I would say it's two markets. So one is the youth themselves because they want to be a part in rewriting this future. And then the others are like, our parents that are ages 35 to 45 that intrinsically understand the digital world, but are a little bit fearful of what it means for their kids. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the Transcending Conversations podcast, one of the reasons that we do it is because we want to to be a space to like amplify stories, you know, of people who are who are chat tackling these issues, who are action oriented, who are doing the work and on the ground and I was just wondering, is there any like stories of like the work that you've done or maybe, you know, you don't have to get specific, but like individuals that have gone through your programs or anything like that, that that you would wish to like amplify, you know, on the podcast? Yeah. I mean, this is like one of my, I'll never forget this. So when I started Half the Story six years ago, there was a young woman from Bolivia who reached out to me because her brother died by suicide. And in Bolivia, there was one, there's one psychologist per 100,000 people at that time. And she reached out and she was like, I lost my brother. You know, he was very engaged in social media. I don't know. Like, I don't know what else, what I can do, but I, there's no real resources here. And like, I want to make a difference. So what I was, what we did is we said, all right, come be a storyteller for us. We're going to train you on how to advocate we're going to give you education. This was like on a one-to-one level before we had actual programming. I mean, I was 21 years old. And uh, we actually wound up connecting with psychologists within Bolivia and her area and were able to like aggregate resources and create resources for youth in, in Bolivia to spread the word about resources on social media, which no one had really aggregated before. And that was when I realized social storytelling is a really powerful way to create action as especially at the beginning of a movement. And then a couple of years went by and one day I got a link to a TED talk from her and she was so inspired by her work that, you know, this girl who is rather shy and grief stricken throughout the span of her time working as a leader with us wound up actually giving a TED talk on her work and her experience. And it was in Spanish, so I could barely understand it. But I just had chills because it just shows that if you give one kid the time of day or resources or empowerment that like they can make a profound difference in their community and the lives of others. And that's why we really want to be able to amplify our impact on a national and, and hopefully global scale. Right. And it's so interesting to think that they can't make an impact for good without like access and knowledge 
two devices, right? Knowing how to yes. use them, having their own device and and everything that comes before. Thank you for sharing that story. Okay, I just have two more questions. <laughs> um, why is this issue of digital well-being and digital like inclusivity and equity important to everyday listeners? Maybe people who don't see the yeah. effects of it firsthand. Well, I think to put it plain and simple is that the average American teen is spending eight hours a day behind their device. That's a third of their life. So for those of you listening, what would you do with 30 years of your life back? And that's the question that young people are faced with every day, whether they know it or not, is that there's an opportunity cost to screen time. There's also a lot of black blessings to it, but we have to give them the tools so that the benefits outweigh the costs and that everyone has an equal right to succeed in the digital world. And there's a difference between equality and equity. And equality is giving everyone the same resources. Equity is understanding people's political, social, economic backgrounds and giving them the stools or education or knowledge so that they can participate in the same level of society as others. And I think that in this space, it's important for us to understand that difference because not everyone comes from the same place. Yeah, for sure. And I think that plays into the idea between like digital access versus digital well-being, right? Taking yeah. what you know about that person and also giving them the skills in their given situation to to thrive. Which is exactly. So exactly. Okay, so we like to wrap up every podcast um, with this question, and I think it bleeds perfectly into what you were just talking about. Um, but, you know, with the title Transcending Conversations, what action can listeners take to help transcend the conversation and create real or impactful change? Start a conversation at your dinner table tonight and ask people or your family or your kids how they feel when they're on technology. And if you want your kids to open up, you have to start with your own story. I love that. That's powerful. I'm going to do that tonight with my family. Yay! <laughs> Well, thank you so much for, for joining us on this episode and, and thank you for just sharing your wisdom, your expertise and just your story and who you are. We really appreciate it and we're really excited for all the work that Half the Story is doing and glad to be a partner. Thank you. The feeling is mutual. We want to thank Lars for joining us on this episode of the Transcending Conversations podcast. We hope that each of you have felt inspired to approach your digital usage differently. To learn more about Lars and her journey, visit liveinlikelars.com. That's L-I-V-I-N-L-I-K-E-L-A-R-Z.com. To learn more about Half the Story and their innovative efforts at the intersection of technology and mental health, visit halfthestoryproject.com. That's halfthestoryproject.com. You can also access both of these links in our show notes. This episode wraps up the first season of the Transcending Conversations podcast. Thank you so much for joining us as we seek to transcend the conversation about digital equity and other pressing issues. Follow us on social media at T-R-A-N-S-C-E-N-D-I-N-T-L. That's T-R-A-N-S-C-E-N-D-I-N-T-L. And stay tuned for another season of Transcending Conversations coming this fall.